0: Good morning, church family. I pray that you are all well as we open to chapter 2 this morning in the epistle of 1 John. Today we will be in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. And as we will see today, John will be transitioning in the text. And what I mean by that is previously John was addressing and writing against the heretical claims that his opponents falsely asserted. Those claims being, number one, that they could have fellowship with God while they walk in darkness. Number two, that they were now enlightened and have taken on a form of sinlessness. And number three, that they simply have not sinned. Not yesterday, not today, not ever. To which John responded, look, if you claim those things and you believe those things, you lie and do not practice the truth, verse 6. You deceive yourselves and the truth is not in you, verse 8. And you call God a liar and his word is not in you, verse 10. But John goes on to say that those who walk in the light as God is in the light, it is those people who actually have true fellowship with God. It is those people who actually have true fellowship with other believers and they have been cleansed of their sin since it is the practice of their lives to confess their sins. And the result of this is, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Thus, the children of God can freely go to God at any time, at any place, and for any sin and confess their sins knowing that God, he will forgive them. And a blessed assurance this is to the Christian. However, as I mentioned a couple weeks back, simply because God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, that does not mean that as Christians we now have a get-out-of-jail-free card to joyfully sin as much or as often as we would like. I saw a photo recently of a little boy who was about six years old, and his hands were up in the air and he was smiling, and he was sitting on his brand-new bike as happy as could be. But the caption of the photo read, I asked God for a new bike, but I know God doesn't work that way, so I just stole a bike instead and asked God for forgiveness. So the question is, as new creations in Christ, are we just to continue in sin so that God's grace may abound? And of course, the answer is, as Paul wrote to the Romans, by no means. And thus John transitions today, or turns his attention away from his opponents and focuses instead on his Christian readers, clarifying for them the work and the accomplishment of Jesus Christ, and offering them some tests, or assessments, if you will, to help them know that their salvation is secure in Jesus Christ. Which takes us to our thesis statement this morning, or a brief overview of the sermon this morning, which is this. Jesus Christ is our advocate and the propitiation for our sins. And we will know that we are his children if we keep his commandments. Again, our thesis statement this morning is this. Jesus Christ is our advocate and the propitiation for our sins. And we will know that we are his children if we keep his commandments. And our text this morning again comes from 1 John Chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. And the Apostle John, he writes, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments. Lord, we thank you for this day. It is a day that you have made, and we as your church are going to rejoice and be glad in it. Father, that we can come together as a church body to encourage each other, to build each other up, and above all else, to worship and to praise you, the God of the universe. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. You're errant, you're perfect, you're sufficient word. And as we will see today, Father, we can know we are your children if we keep your commandments. For it is the evidence that we have in the here and now that we are truly your children. Father, I pray you open the heart or the eyes of our dear congregants here. Open their ears this morning to the truth of their word. Soften their hearts. Father, I pray that you help my lisping, stammering tongue as well to communicate truthfully, lovingly, and boldly your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Our first of two points this morning is this, point number one. Christian rejoice, for Jesus Christ is our advocate and the propitiation for our sins. Point number one, Christian rejoice, for Jesus Christ is our advocate and the propitiation for our sins. Verses 1 and 2. It says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. John opens chapter 2 with my little children. And just notice the pastoral heart and pastoral concern from the Apostle John here for his readers as he calls them my little children. John Calvin noted that the pastor ought to have two voices. One for gathering the sheep and another for warding off and driving away wolves and thieves. So if John was warding off and driving away wolves and thieves in chapter 1 and chapter 2, he most certainly seems to change the tone of his voice in order to gather and lovingly address his sheep. And what does John want to address Well, although he spent a large part of the first chapter telling anyone and everyone who would listen that we all sin, that we can't avoid sin, and we must confess our sin, not deny our sin or deceive ourselves into thinking we don't sin, here in chapter 2, John writes in verse 1, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And you may be sitting there this morning thinking, Huh? Which one is it, John? You just told us in chapter 1 that everyone sins, and now you are telling us in chapter 2, don't sin. Thus, how are we as Christians, or as the readers of this text, to understand this text? And the answer is really quite simple because before John launches into the cure for our sin problem or points his readers to the accomplishment of their Savior Jesus Christ, John wants to make sure that his readers understand that just because they have a Savior who will forgive them and cleanse them of all of their sin, that does not mean that they also have a license to sin as much as they like. Tony Evans illustrated it this way. He wrote, if a person comprehends that good health is a gift, they are not going to abuse drugs. When a Christian understands that grace is a gift from God, they will then naturally say no to wrong and yes to light, no to darkness and yes to light. But if a Christian ever loses sight of grace, then they will become irresponsible with the life given to them by God. So despite the fact that if we confess our sins, we have a God who is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. John is still charging his readers here not to let sin abound in their life, but to instead fight sin, to run from sin, and to do their absolute best by God's grace to mortify and to put to death the deeds of the flesh. In essence, John's saying you have been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and are now new creations in Christ. Thus, don't settle for your old ways of life. Instead, be and live who you are now are in Jesus Christ. So although John acknowledges that sinless perfection for the Christian is not possible on this side of eternity, he also recognizes that for those who are now in Jesus Christ, they can and they should, even on this side of eternity, sin less. So yes, Christian, in the here and now, we will never, ever, ever be sinless. However, as the redeemed, born in the likeness of Christ, we can and we should, by God's grace, sin less. Nevertheless, John goes back to the well here, and he reminds and encourages his readers yet again, thus we best not forget, verses 1 and 2, if anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So it is obvious based on this text that John knows without a shadow of a doubt that his readers and every human being for that matter, they are fallen and that all will sin. So he says in verse 1, if anyone does sin, a.k.a. sin, it is going to happen in your life, and when it does, this is what you need to do, brother Christian, sister Christian. Number one, confess your sins, First 1 John 1, nine, and number two, run to the advocate and to the propitiation for our sins. And this text, church, it just displays the eternal goodness and the eternal gracefulness of our God as it communicates that our God, he has already provided a solution for us. Our God, he has already made a provision for us. Our God, he already has an answer, a fix, and a savior lined up for us to deal with our sin problem, and that savior is Jesus Christ, the righteous. So now there are two really insightful illustrations here in verses 1 and 2 describing the work and the accomplishment of Jesus Christ on behalf of his children. The first being that Jesus Christ is our advocate. Now the term advocate, it is a legal term here. And it is describing someone who comes alongside you or who speaks on your behalf within a legal setting. So the mental picture here is this that if God is the perfect and righteous judge of all mankind judging the world in line of his perfect justice and if Satan is our accuser or the one who accuses us day and night before God revelation 12:10 then we are the guilty party we are guilty of sin guilty of transgressions and guilty of literal treason against the god of the universe So the question is this, how can we, those who are guilty of sin, ever stand justified before a God who is light and in whom is no darkness at all? And the answer... It is because we have an advocate with God the Father. We have the ultimate advocate, the one who knows we are guilty of sin and yet still is willing to come alongside us and intercede on our behalf before the throne of God. And that advocate is Jesus Christ, the righteous, the one who is perfectly righteous and who now intercedes on behalf of those who are not righteous but who place their trust in him. And here is the crazy thing. Even though we are sinners, and deserve eternal condemnation. Jesus Christ he is the ultimate defense attorney, and he always, always, always gets his children acquitted and absolved and cleared of the eternal punishment that they deserve for their sins. And how does he do this? How does Jesus Christ back and defend and support this idea that those who have placed their trust in him should not face the eternal wrath that they deserve, but instead be deemed justified and righteous before a holy God? It is because Jesus Christ is unlike any other advocate the courtroom has ever seen. Because this advocate, Jesus Christ, he is also willing to pay the price for our sins, the, price that his ch- the sins that his children have committed. For he is also, verse 2, the propitiation for our sins. Now, if you are not familiar with the term propitiation, Simon Kissmaker defined it as a wrath-removing sacrifice that Jesus Christ is our wrath-removing sacrifice. And Michael Green, he illustrated it this way. He said, In the days of the pioneers, when men saw that a prairie fire was coming, what would they do? Since not even the fastest of horses could outrun them, the pioneers would take a match and burn the grass of a designated area around them. Then they would take their stand in the burnt area and be safe from the threatening prairie fire. And as the roar of the flames approached, they would not be afraid. Even as the ocean of fire surged around them, there was no fear, because fire had already passed over the place where they stood. When the judgment of God comes to sweep men and women into hell for eternity, there is but one spot that is safe. Nearly 2,000 years ago, the wrath of God was poured out, poured out on Calvary, where the Son of God took the wrath that should have fallen on us. And now if we take our stand at the cross, we are safe for eternity, as the wrath of God toward our sins have already been satisfied. So now John takes his readers out of the courtroom and into the tabernacle or into the Old Testament sacrificial system, where Jesus Christ becomes our wrath-removing sacrifice. Because as James Montgomery Boyce put it, if the Old Testament sacrificial system has taught us anything, it's that there is a way of escape for the sinner, and that another, an animal, could die in the place of sinners. However, church, the limitation of the Old Testament sacrificial system was that it was not created to eternally satisfy the wrath of God. Instead it ultimately pointed to the sacrifice that was to come the one that would appease the wrath of God toward the sins of his children meaning it profoundly pointed to the perfect sacrifice it pointed to Jesus Christ the righteous the one without sin and who would die in the place of those guilty of sin. Thus Jesus Christ he entered once and for all into the holy places not by the means of the blood of goats or calves but by the means of his own blood and in doing so, he secured eternal redemption, Hebrews 9. You see, church, the wrath, the judgment, the punishment that we deserve for our sin, Jesus Christ, he bore it, and he satisfied and appeased the divine wrath of God against the sins of his children. Thus, Jesus Christ served as the wrath-removing sacrifice, the propitiation for my sins, for your sins, and verse 2, for the sins of the whole world, meaning Jesus' substitutionary atonement, It is not limited to just Christians here in the United States. It is not limited to just Christians who are reformed or who affirm the doctrines of grace. It is not just limited to Christians who look like us or act like us or can use fancy words like advocate or propitiation, but Jesus Christ's work on the cross, it is efficient for every person who confesses his name as Lord and Savior throughout the entire world. For a ransom people from every tongue, every tribe, and every nation For Jesus Christ truly is the advocate, the propitiation, and the Savior for all of his children throughout the entire world. But, how do we know that we have truly trusted in Jesus' atoning, wrath-appeasing sacrifice on the cross? And how do we know that he truly advocates for us before the throne of God? Or how can we as Christians be sure that our salvation is secure in Jesus Christ in the here and now? Which brings us to point number two. The evidence that a Christian truly knows God and has been saved by God is that they will keep his commandments. The evidence that a Christian truly knows God and has been saved by God is that they will keep his commandments. Verses three through six. John begins in verse 3 with this, And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Now remember, John's opponents have claimed that because of their special enlightenment, that they know God, and that they have fellowship with God. And as Gary Burge put it, it's like an infection in this Christian community. A virus that urges that the pathway to salvation does not depend on the freedom from sin, but rather from freedom of ignorance. So then if mysticism and knowledge opened the way to God, other mundane matters such as earthly obedience and morality could easily be swept away. So what John is doing here in verses 3 through 5 is providing his readers with a litmus test or an assessment of sorts to help them figure out if they are truly saved and if they truly know God. Because as we have seen from 1 John, there are plenty of people who claim to know God. There are plenty of people who claim to have fellowship with God and who claim to be saved but who are not. Thus John says to his readers, if you really want to know that your salvation is secure, if you really want to know that you have placed your faith and your trust and your confidence in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you really want to know that you have been redeemed and reborn and saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, then look at your life and ask yourself, are you obedient to the commandments of God? Why? Because verse three says, "By this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. By this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments." And what exactly are these commandments? John summarizes them so well in First John chapter three, verse 23, where he writes. And this is his commandment. And this is God's commandment. That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. John keeps the Christian faith so simple, doesn't he? He says to his original readers... He says to his brothers and sisters in Christ that are reading the text today, the evidence, the proof, the assurance that you have been saved and possess the gift of eternal salvation is this, that you believe in the name of God's Son, Jesus Christ, and you love one another. And oh, these two commandments, they go together perfectly, don't they? Like peanut butter and jelly, like cookies and milk, like Nutella and just about anything, believing in the name of God's Son, Jesus Christ, and loving one another, that is the evidence that one knows God, loves God, and truly has been saved. And whoever makes this the practice of their lives, believing in Christ and loving one another, keeping God's commandments, or verse 5, keeping God's word, it reads, in him truly the love of God is perfected. In him truly the love of God is perfected. Now there is a lot of debate and confusion about this text, so I'll try to be as clear and succinct as possible. Again, John is not promoting the idea that Christians can achieve some form of sinless moral perfection here on earth. He spent the entire second half of chapter 1 refuting this notion, so it is obvious that John does not have sinless perfection in mind. However, what John is communicating here is that those who know God's love and who have experienced God's love and who have been transformed by God's love, they love God in return. And they keep God's commandments because they love him. And their love of God or their love for God as they keep his word and they keep his commandments, it just keeps growing and growing and growing and maturing and maturing and maturing. And is this not the goal of the Christian life church? That we love God so much that we simply desire to keep his commandments commandments above all else in all that we do for obedience to god it is a sign that we truly love god d.l moody he shared this story he said there is no power like love i loved my little boy long before he loved me one night i heard him say to his mama when he thought i was asleep i love papa What a thrill of joy that gave me. I had loved him from infancy, but now he was beginning to love me. A few weeks before, he might have seen me carried out of the house in a coffin, and perhaps not knowing any better, might have thoughtlessly laughed about it. But now my love for him had found a response. Something like this is the feeling which God has when a sinner melts under his love. For love produces love. What a power it might become in our pulpits and in our Sunday school classes and in our meetings. But the reason we have so little love for Jesus Christ is that we are so little acquainted with him. The more intimately we get acquainted with the Son of God, the more we shall love him. And we may get acquainted with him by reading the word of God. If you can read the life of Jesus Christ without having your heart kindled with love toward him, the devil has surely blinded you. And you ought to pray. God opens your eyes. Church, when one knows that we have been so loved by God, that greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends, that God shows his love for us, and while we, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, the only natural response, it is to love him right back. For love produces love. And as Jesus said in John 14:5, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Thus if you are struggling to keep the commandments of God this morning, brother Christian, sister Christian, then let me ask you, how much do you love God this morning? And if you are struggling to love God this morning with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind and with all of your strength, then let me ask you, how well do you know God this morning? How much have you been meditating on, dwelling on, and reflecting on the atoning, wrath-appeasing sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross? Because the more we know God, and commune with God, and read the word of God, and pray to God, and trust in the goodness of God, and rest in the grace of God, the more we are going to love him. And the more we love him, the more we are going to follow him, and listen to him, and be obedient to him. Thus, if your love for God this morning is waning, brother Christian, Sister Christian, or if your desire to follow his commandments this morning is waning, then walk out of here this morning making it your priority to know God more. To recognize and appreciate and to be mentally and inwardly and internally mastered by the fact that God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved you, even when you were dead in your trespasses, He made you alive with Christ. That when you were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcised in the flesh, God made you alive together with Him, having forgiven you of all of your trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against you with its legal demands this he set aside nailing it to a cross for by grace you have been saved oh Christian you were dead in your sin deceased in your sin and literally done for in your sin but God being rich in mercy sent his son Jesus Christ the righteous to be our perfect advocate and the propitiation for our sins thus never ever ever let yourself become numb to this life saving truth but instead allow yourself to be mastered by this truth and to be spurred on to all the more joyfully love God and to keep his commandments for it is the evidence that God's truth is in you and that you are truly saved. And as we close this morning, I'll begin with the non-Christian who is here first. To the non-Christian who is here today, John writes in verse 4, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Now, you may be sitting there this morning thinking, you know, I think I do keep God's commandments. I mean, you said earlier, Pastor West, that we are commanded to love people, and I do love people. I give to the poor. I care for my family. I help people I don't know on the street. I make sacrifices for co-workers. I even give money to the local food bank. I do love people. And please know, non-Christian, I do not doubt for a second that you do those things. However, lovingly, I'd like to point out that doing those things alone, they do not merit or earn you eternal salvation. Because there is only one way anyone can be eternally saved. And it is via believing in the Son Jesus Christ, our advocate and the propitiation for our sins. And who is this Son of God? Who is this Jesus Christ? For he is God, who came into the world and took on human flesh. Jesus Christ, he is truly God and truly man. And what did Jesus Christ do? He lived a perfect, sinless, and righteous life. He lived the life that we could never live. And although he was tempted in every respect like we are, Jesus Christ, he never sinned. And as a perfect, righteous being, Jesus Christ not only fulfilled the law that we could never keep, Jesus Christ, he also paid the price for our breaking of the law. And the wrath that we deserve for our sins, the punishment that we deserve for our sins, Jesus Christ, he bore it and he was nailed to a cross, crucified, and died, the righteous one dying for the unrighteous. But being that Jesus Christ was completely and truly righteous, Sin and death, they had no power over Jesus. They had no claim over Jesus, and they literally could not keep him dead. Thus, three days later, Jesus Christ, he rose from the dead, from the dead, displaying to the world that He had indeed defeated sin and defeated death through eternity, and that those who believe in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Thus, non-Christian, let today be the day that you repent of your sin. Let today be the day that you turn from your sin and you trust in Jesus Christ and Christ alone as the only one who can forgive you of your sin, the only one who paid the price for your sins, the only one who can clothe you in his perfect life and reconcile you back to God forever. And today will be the day that you no longer need to trust in your own works of salvation, for they are nothing more than dirty rags. Instead, today will be the day that you place your trust in jesus's perfect life death and resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins and walk out of here this morning knowing that you have been eternally saved let today be the day non-christian and to the christian who is here this morning our text this morning closes with this by this we may know that we are in him Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Church, this is how we know that we are the children of God and that our salvation is secure. If we say we abide in Christ, if we say we remain in Christ, if we say that we live in Christ, then we will walk in the same way in which Jesus Christ walked. For Christ will be our example and we will pattern our lives after Christ. But what exactly does this mean, practically speaking? Well, think for a second of the most Christ like person you've ever met. Think for a second of the most Christ like person you've ever met. And when you have that person in your mind, answer these questions for me. Do you consider them Christ like because they know big theological words or because they consistently go to their Heavenly Father in prayer? Do you consider them Christ-like because they wear a suit to church or because they invite their unbelieving co-workers to church? Do you consider them Christ-like because they tell others how wonderful they are or because they gave you food when you were hungry, the shirt off their back when you were cold and visited you when you were sick? Do you consider them Christ-like because you hear them say how important obedience to the commandments of God are or because you actually see them keep God's commandments and live out God's commandments? Church, the most Christ-like people we know, they follow God's commandments. Therefore, to walk in Christ is to follow God's commandments. Now, just to warn you, Christian, if you want to be cool and woke and popular and trendy and fit in with the world, then you best be getting over that. Because to walk in the ways of Christ, the ways in which he walked, they will never ever be cool to the world calling people to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, that will never be cool to the world. Seeking the kingdom of God first, that will never be cool to the world. Loving your enemies, it will never be cool to the world. Choosing the narrow and hard way that leads to eternal life, that will never be cool to the world. That is why, church, when someone takes so serious their call to be obedient to the word of God and to walk in the same way that Christ walked, oh, they stick out like a sore thumb thumb, shining brightly the light of Christ for all in this dark world to see. Thus, if you are struggling to joyfully walk in the ways of Christ with the backdrop of this hatred and angry and depraved world around you, then take heed this morning, Christian, for this is what you were called. Because Christ, our propitiation, he suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his footsteps. Oh, Christian, if we must ever suffer for Christ as we try to be obedient to the commandments of God, let us simply consider it an honor, for Christ is our example, and for in him and not the world is where our eternal glory lies. Thus it is my prayer that we as a church body know what we have been given in Christ. Lord, you have given us an advocate, one who knows we are guilty and yet still intercedes on our behalf. Lord, you have given us a propitiation, one who bore the wrath that we deserve for our sin and who paid the Christ for our redemption. And that advocate, that propitiation, the Savior who died for the sins of the whole world, his name is Jesus Christ the righteous. Thus, as we come to know you more, Lord, let us be quick to love you more. And as we come to love you more, Lord, let us be quick to keep your commandments and help us to not blush in the face of any persecution we may face as we are merely following in the footsteps of Christ. Thus, let us hold fast to the truth this morning, church, that we are now friends with Christ and we desire to keep his commandments. Oh, that we walk in Christ, church. Oh, that we walk boldly and obediently in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, believe in your Son, Jesus Christ and love people You have made the Christian faith so simple. And yet why do we make it so hard? Are we afraid of the world? Are we afraid what the TV stations say, the radio says, what our friends will think? Father, if we are struggling to keep your commandments because we are afraid of the world, help us to love you more. And if we are struggling to love and to trust you in the here and now, help us to take ourselves to the cross. To understand that you intercede for us currently on our behalf before the throne of God. And you do it because someone paid the price for our sins. Someone has already paid the price for our redemption. And it was your work on the cross, Jesus Christ. The unrighteous one or the righteous one dying for the unrighteous. Help us meditate on that truth, cling to that truth every day. That you died for our sins, Jesus Christ, so that we can be reconciled back to God forever. Oh, that it spark our love for you, God, like never before. And that our love for you sparks our willingness to follow all of your commands, even in the face of this hostile world. Oh, that we shine brightly for this world to see and stick out like a sore thumb, Father, so that you be glorified so that you be glorified now and forever and ever. Amen.